Now when they had drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village, and in front of you, immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, Why are you... What are you doing? And tying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of, the, of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went on to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the church, the people of God, are a gospel people. We are people of the good news. We're not people that are the production people or the entertainment people. We're the good news people. We believe that we can have life with God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We believe that we are more sinful than we dared believe, but also more love than we could dare even to hope. And so we're the good news people who get to, by the mercy of God, dwell in and look on the greatness of His Son in His Word this morning. We see Jesus over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, is this authoritative one. And Jesus came, and as he came, he came proclaiming. The first words off of Jesus' mouth were his ministry, were the kingdom of God is at hand, which was a massive statement. Well, what Jesus did when he declared that the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is at hand, is that he put all other kingdoms on notice. Like, now you're facing the kingdom. There are going to be no rivals. There will be some in rebellion. But he put all those other kingdoms on notice that the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is here. And then what he does in his life and his ministry is he goes about establishing and displaying the authority of that kingdom. The authority that he has as the son of God. But he doesn't establish that authority of that kingdom with armies. He doesn't come with with military might. He doesn't come with with political prowess and power and and kind of bring the the political powers that be underneath his his authority. Instead, he starts by walking into the wilderness, facing down the enemy, Satan. He teaches. Teaches with authority like no one has ever taught. He casts out demons. He heals the sick. You see, Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom that we see has unmatched authority in the Gospels. But it's also a kingdom that's a little bit different than what we would have thought. It's unlike any other kingdom. And that that kingdom is authoritative and unlike other kingdoms is displayed brilliantly in the triumphal entry here in Mark 11. You see, this is the story of how the king enters into Jerusalem, not with military might, not with an army with him, not with political power now gathered to him, now that he's got all the pieces in place where he can finally get, pull his political punch and 
overthrow things the way he wants to. He comes into the city, he comes into Jerusalem more like one who serves. Less like a conqueror and more like one who's ready to give his life as a ransom. See, Jesus doesn't make the heavens shake. He doesn't send thunder and lightning like Moses when he was establishing, here's what the people of God are going to be like at Sinai. There's no thunder and lightning, frightening scene. There's no huge cloud that's hovering over him in Jerusalem as he enters in, as when Solomon dedicated the temple. There's none of that. Jesus arrives humbly, poised to accomplish the strange but decisive kingdom act of dying as a ransom. And Mark has uh, ordered his gospel uniquely. We, we think often when we think of stories, we think of biographies, which is somewhat the gospels. They're more than that, but they're following the life of Jesus. We think of it chronologically. It's how we think. Mark has been ordering his gospel largely geographically. So we saw he, he started out and he, he kind of has this base of operations in Galilee, in Capernaum. And he goes beyond that. We see he goes to the Decapolis, to some other cities around that area that weren't part of what would have been uh, Judea or Galilee. He went up to Syrophoenician areas. He went to Caesarea Philippi. And then since then, he's kind of been making his slow way back down to Judea, to Jerusalem. He's been moving towards there. In a sense, we could say that Mark has always been moving the life and ministry of Jesus toward Jerusalem, towards this end. And so we're about to enter into kind of the final week of Jesus' life. And you thought, great, we're almost done with Mark. Well, the last third of Mark is all in this final week, so we're not about done. We've got a ways to go yet. We've got all the way through chapter 16. Verse 1, Jesus and his disciples are drawing near to Jerusalem, to Bethany and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And and Jesus sends out two of his disciples. Now, Jerusalem, we need to know, is, is an important city. Now, instinctively, we know that, right? Like, it's still an important city in the, in the world scene, but it was an important city then. It was important in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the city that David, the, the, the king, the kind of the, the pinnacle of kings in Israel's history, he's the one that set it, Jerusalem up as this capital city. It was also known as the city of David. This was the place where the, the Ark of the Covenant was, was placed. This was the place where, where the temple was built, where, where God's presence was to dwell. This was understood then in the Old Testament as a place where the Lord put his name. This was the city of the Lord. This was where he dwelt with man. It's summed up well in a few different psalms. We'll go with one, though, this morning. Psalm 48. In Psalm 48, here's what we read, kind of what their thoughts are. On the city of Jerusalem. If you read in verse 1 through 3, it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Speaking of Jerusalem. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. I'm going to skip down to verse 8. And it says, And as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. So you can see the praises they have of this great city, what they would have thought of this great city. This is the city of the king. This is the city that our, our Lord has established, the place where he's placed his presence, where he's put his name. A few theologians say this, that Jerusalem plays a central role within the story then, not only the Old Testament, but we move to the New Testament, plays a central story there. And this is no accident. If Jerusalem at the dawn of the New Testament period was associated with the presence of the divine name, which we just read in Psalm 48, it was the throne of the true king, the place of the true sacrifice, then the center of Israel's life 
and the focus of its eschatological hope, its end hope, then it was inevitable that the mission of Israel's Messiah would be intricately connected with this unique city. Indeed it was. Jesus' mission, his life, his ministry, has been moving towards this city all along. All roads, in a sense, for Jesus have led here, or leading to Jerusalem. Now Mark doesn't emphasize Jerusalem like you see other gospel writers. Luke says that Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. And he talks about that great city a little bit more. We don't hear much from Mark. He just kind of passes through. He's going to kind of assume that we know some things and just go right on. But knowing the importance of Jerusalem helps set the stage for why this is such a big deal for Jesus to have some sort of triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we read in verse 1, he's moving toward Jerusalem. And as he's preparing to go in, he sends two of his disciples. And he says to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever said, untie it and bring it. So he sends a couple of his disciples on a quest to find a colt. That is a colt of a donkey. That's clearer in other gospels. This would have been a common beast of burden. Like they just, they carry weight. That's what they do. That it's to be that one that hasn't been set on is an interesting detail for Mark to point out. I think that would be tied with and associated with the, the suitability of this, this animal for sacred use, to be set aside to be used for something other than just being a common beast of burden. And so Jesus sent two disciples, and they're, they're not named. These two unnamed disciples hear Jesus' command, and we're going to see that they just obey it. And it's a strange command. Like, there's a village up here, you just go find a donkey, it's going to be tied, just go find it, and I just, I need it. They're probably, maybe they were looking around, like, we don't have a lot of luggage with us, we've left everything and followed you, they already said that clearly to him. Maybe they thought this command was strange, but notice what they do. They don't ask for clarification, not that we see in the text, they don't argue, they don't say, are you sure about this, Jesus, or... And I don't know if we have the strength to get there. They don't argue. They don't ask for clarification. Two unnamed disciples model discipleship by hearing the command of Jesus and just obeying it. Just going and doing exactly what he said. They don't know why, but he commanded. And so here are these two unnamed disciples. They go and follow Jesus' command. And this normal act of obedience from two unnamed disciples matters in the story as Jesus moves closer and closer toward Jerusalem. We see in verse 3, Jesus instructs him further. If anyone asks you, says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, well, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and then they let him go. Now Mark, again, has been consistently showing us the authority of the Son of God the authority of the kingdom of God. Here's the one who comes and he goes to the synagogue and casts out an unclean spirit. Just by his words, by speaking it out, he has that kind of authority. He teaches as one with authority. He heals paralyzed men with authority. He heals other diseases, takes away blindness, makes people who can't hear, hear. He stops storms just by speaking to them. I mean, this is the man who has authority. And Mark has continued to show us this over and over and over again, that this is a person with authority. Now, all those things, calming a storm, healing someone who's paralyzed, feeding 4,000, 5,000, all those things seem like really big events. And they show that the Son of God has authority. But I think it's nice to notice here in small ways that the Son of God has authority. 
You see, the disciples obey Jesus' authority, and everything is exactly as he says it will be. Even the small details are just as Jesus has said. The colt is where Jesus said it would be. It was tied, tied as he said it would be. It was never ridden as he said. They were questioned as he said, and then they were released. You know, it ought to bring us comfort that the Lord has authority, not just over these large things, but over these small things as well. Yes, we ought to rejoice that God has authority to speak to storms and make them be quiet. It ought to make us rejoice that God can feed 4,000, 5,000, that he can heal great diseases, that he can do and overturn what no one else could do or overturn. It ought to bring us great joy that he upholds the big universe by the word of his power, that he has that kind of authority, that just by the word of his power he upholds it and that he is sustaining it. But we're not always in big storms. We're not always needing to feed four or 5,000 people. And so we can rejoice in Jesus' authority there, we can know that he's more than enough to handle things that seem overwhelming and insurmountable in our eyes, but to know that in small and ordinary things are under Jesus' authority can bring us great comfort to us who are small, ordinary people, who do small and ordinary things. There's a cult there. It's tied. Like Jesus has authority there as well. Even in the placement of the cult, even of it being tied, even of it being unwritten as he said, is showing his authority. He is still exercising his authority as the Son of God. This is just as Jesus would have wanted it to be. Did you notice something that Mark just kind of flies through? But notice what Jesus says here, that he kind of veils the rest of the gospel. In verse 3, did you catch it? Notice that he said, the Lord has need of it. And Jesus has been very veiled with his identity and who he's been this, this point. And now he's kind of starting to let it leak a little bit more. Oh yeah, I'm the Lord. I need something here. He's veiled his identity so that he could show it forth in his life, in his ministry, in his teaching. He could give the character and nature of who he is and what he's all about, apart from all the expectations that would have come with it from the world and in their eyes. But his veiling of his identity is not to be mistaken for reluctance on his part to be the Lord or unwillingness to be the Messiah. He's not reluctant or unwilling. He's just trying to fill that out for them in a way that doesn't meet their expectations that shows that he's different, bigger, and better. But he's starting to unveil it more and more. In this final week, he's going to fill it out. Here's what it means to be Messiah. Here's what it means to be Lord. He's going to show them in this final week of his life. He's going to show them how willing he is to be the Lord. Not the one that they want, but the one that they actually need, that sinful humanity needs. And so a small act of obedience from two unnamed disciples leads them to this cult, which leads them back to Jesus, which is going to lead to the entrance of the Lord, the Son of God, into the city of God. And verse 7 says, They brought the cult to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. This was the time of the Passover. So they're going up to Jerusalem, and there would have been several people also going up to Jerusalem. It, it is said at that time that there would have been approximately half a million people that lived within Jerusalem and that it could swell to over two or three times that, maybe up to two and a half million. So there would have been lots of people on these roads up to Jerusalem as they traveled there for Passover. Now, in, in their traveling up to Jerusalem, most people, the majority of people, would complete the journey on foot. 
And so it is a strange command that Jesus would send out a couple of his disciples to get a colt specifically so that he could ride on it into Jerusalem. This is out of place. And maybe Jesus was tired. Maybe he didn't want to walk anymore. But that's clearly not the main reason that Jesus wanted to ride on this donkey. There are some other things going on here. In fact, Mark doesn't even mention it at all, but Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. In Zechariah 9, 9, this is the prophecy that is fulfilled here. One you've likely heard, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now Mark doesn't play that up at all. He just kind of pushes through that. But this is what's going on. In a simple act of mounting a donkey, Jesus is announcing himself as the promised Messiah. He is announcing himself as the one that was prophesied years ago. Again, it's somewhat veiled as Jesus finishes his course, but it's not hidden for those who would have eyes to see that this is fulfilling all that God had promised. He's sitting on a colt, and it's a deliberate sitting on the colt. It's a deliberate claim to be the Messiah of Zechariah 9. And yet, this this king is different. Notice what Zechariah 9 said. It said, humbled. Humbled. I think that could describe the entire scene that we're looking at here. We're, We're thinking if we could play this up like the Lord, the Son of God, is coming into the city of God, the place where he should be and reign and rule. And yet, it's kind of all a humble scene. One theologian says it this way, that in order to lay claim to the honors of royalty, he enters Jerusalem riding on, and I'll switch the words, old language, so you get it, a donkey. A magnificent display, truly. More especially when the donkey was was borrowed from some person. And when the want of a saddle and of accoutrements compelled the disciples to throw their garments on it, which was the mark of a mean and disgraceful poverty. I remember, I think it was 2006, uh, when George Bush came to Oklahoma State's graduation. He spoke at their graduation one year. And I remember, he, I think he landed, you guys might, he landed, I think, at Vance. Am I right there? He landed at Vance, and then they got in helicopters from there and flew over to Stillwater. And I was in the stadium, uh, it was in the football stadium where he came. And it was awesome to see, like, these huge, it wasn't just one helicopter, like, a couple helicopters with him, you know, kind of coming in. It was awesome, they flying low, and you just hear the, the noise and the sound pounding. And I'm like, God bless America, right? You know, like... Power and might, you know, in our, in our Air Force, and I was probably Marines, sorry, but like, whatever. The power and might there was, was noticeable, and I loved it. He had this great, like, entrance into this place. And Jesus here has no chopper. Right? He, he's not even coming in on a beautiful war horse with all the ornaments He's not being carried on a litter. You know what they would do with kings and queens? Like, hey, you deserve to be above us, so we're going to carry you. He's not rushed in on men's shoulders after like, you know, like a, a sports win. You got the big victory and you've won it and we're going to ha- hoist you on our shoulders and come in in victory. He has none of that. He's on a donkey. I mean, it's like a pony at a kid's party. I mean, it's a colt of a donkey. And even that, it's not even his. Like he had to borrow it, and he has to send it back afterwards. Like his rental's only for a few hours, and he's got to take it back. And there's no saddle for it. It's like just dirty garments, whatever. That, that we got a couple dirty garments on. We'll, just, we'll use that. That's what Jesus is sitting on. And he goes into a city, his city, filled with people that, that he made. I mean, behold your king. 
This is him, the one with total authority that can calm storms, heal diseases, cast out unclean spirits, is humble. You ever get upset when you're not the A team? You, know, you got to play on the B team. Like, Man, I really feel like I got slighted. I should have been on the A team. I'm on JV. I should be on varsity. Or I'm riding the bench when I think I should be playing. You ever feel slighted in those kind of ways? The Son of God sat on a donkey. His humility puts an uncomfortable spotlight on all our foolish pride. On thinking that the JV is below me. But the Son of God, who created all things, all things were created through him and for him, sat on a donkey and went into a city filled with people that he made. And this ride on the donkey is only the beginning of the humility that Jesus will show in his final week. You see, as he continues and begins his ascent into Jerusalem, he's continuing his descent in order to serve sinful humanity. He continues to go down further still. As he draws near to Jerusalem on the donkey, he's drawing nearer and nearer to the greatest humiliation that he will face. But as Jesus draws near on this donkey, the crowd around him begins to be stirred up. In verse 8, it says that, And many, and there would have likely been many on the road, spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches, palms that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. As Jesus is coming on a donkey, somehow spontaneous celebration from the crowd starts to rise up and it breaks out. It's from those who were, who were with him or maybe were on the way ahead of him. It just starts breaking out. These, these are the people that were just been going up, just normal pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. And they break out into spontaneous celebration. And so they use their garments to, to lay before him. And they, they wave palm branches. They put those down before him as a way to kind of salute him, to, to honor him, to, to celebrate him as he enters into Jerusalem. And they cry out, Hosanna! which is a Hebrew word. It just means save us, Lord, now. It's, a, it would have been, it's part of Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26 is where that comes from. It was part of one of the Hallel praises, Hallel Psalms, where they, they would have memorized this as a prayer to God, a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of celebration. They say, Hosanna, which is save us, O Lord. It became kind of uh, attached to just praise before God, praising to God, thanking God. There was exuberant joy with it. There was a thankful salutation to God in saying, Hosanna. And this psalm is a psalm of celebration as the procession enters into Jerusalem. It was fitting for Jesus. Now certainly this psalm, you you may not have heard Psalm 118, 25 and 26. You may not know where that had come from, but I I bet you've heard other parts of Psalm 118. A couple verses before, 25 and 26, it says that the the rock has been rejected. That comes from that psalm as well. So certainly, when saying this psalm and saying Hosanna, there were some messianic expectations associated with it. Perhaps even a plea, save us, Lord, send a Messiah, the rock that the builders rejected. Make that the cornerstone. Maybe there is some of that with it. And, and especially given verse 10, this is not part of the psalm. Blessed is the coming 
kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Surely there were some messianic expectations surrounding this cry as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So likely the crowd of of just normal pilgrims going up to Jerusalem speak a little better than they know. I don't know that they grasp the fullness. I don't know that they're crying out for a Messiah that will save them. But they're caught up in this spontaneous celebration. They probably speak better than they know. That there's no at least notable note of trouble here. If they were crying out and there were crowds that were, had real expectation of a real Messiah coming, then surely Rome would have taken notice and tried to stamp that out. In fact, they do that later in the week. Here, it doesn't seem like anyone takes notice. And so Jesus, the Son of God, enters into Jerusalem. Now, there are some great entry songs. I mean, think about sports. There are some awesome entry songs. Mariano Rivera He's the Hall of Fame closer for the Yankees. He used to come into Inner Sandman, Metallica. Of course, none of you know that song, right? But like, that's what he came into. Man, the crowds would go crazy. You start playing that song, and you, you know this closer's coming in. He's going he's gonna to win the game. He's going to shut down the game. Or the Bulls. We've had the Bulls in front of us over and over again. Their, their 90s entry song, you, know, you can hear that music playing. And you know, like, they're getting ready to introduce Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan. Like, you're getting ready to face the Bulls. You better get ready. And so when that song would start playing, when those entry songs start playing, it, like it, it rises up the praise. Like you start thinking, like noise gets louder in the crowd. People start getting hyped up. But there's also some expectation. You hear the Bulls' entry song, you know you're getting ready to expect that the Bulls are going to come out and demolish you. That Mariano Rivera is going to come and close you down. Like that's the way entry songs go. And Jesus here, he has an entry song. And, and it's filled with praise, but also some expectation. There's a mixed note to it. There's some acclaim to him, some praise to him, some expectation, but it's not over the top. They don't expect too much. And Mark, you got to love his style. He doesn't linger on any of this at all. He doesn't try to draw out messianic expectations. He doesn't try to make sure that we see that Jesus is the Messiah. He just tries to move the narrative along. He doesn't linger. He doesn't play up messianic notes. He doesn't draw much attention to the crowd. He doesn't draw much attention to Hosanna. He doesn't even say, like, here's where it came from, anything like that. And so the triumphal entry seems to lack some oomph, triumph. It's just an entry into Jerusalem. It seems muted. The whole, the whole scene seems anticlimactic, which maybe that's not the funnest to preach. Like, hey, I'm going to preach the anticlimax the whole time. Anticlimactic, especially compared to what Jesus has shown. Like, where's the storm? Make that be quiet. Like, bring some people that need healing and, and do that thing. Not just walk into the city on a colt. But Mark just moves us along. And what he does is he inserts this really strange conclusion that's almost like the anticlimax to an anticlimactic event. Verse 11, he enters Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Like, there it is. Like, he went into Jerusalem. That's how Mark reports it. What an anticlimactic event. Like, the entry song was played. You, like, let's do this thing. The, the crowd's cheered. Let's go get the W. Like, let's go finally and fully demolish the things we need to demolish and set up what we need to set up. Let's get that going right now. Instead, he just says he enters. And he goes to the temple and he, and he looks around at everything. But isn't that interesting that he notes that? Well, what a strange experience for Jesus, knowing fully who he is and what he's come to do to go to the temple and kind of take it all in. What a strange experience. As he goes to the temple, there's no Hosanna. 
There's no welcoming party crying out to him, laying things before him as he walks into the Holy of Holies. Or, it seems, anyone even interested there. And when Jesus was born, and he's presented at the temple, he's brought in, Simeon is there, awaiting the coming Messiah. And when he sees him come in, he recognizes him, and he gives thanks for him, and he prophesies over him. There's a widow, Anna, who was in the temple as well. She was fasting and praying, waiting for the coming Messiah. And when she sees him, she recognizes him and gives thanks to him. We don't see anything like that as Jesus arrives in the temple here. True worshipers recognize Jesus as the one worthy of worship, fulfilling the prophecy. There was those that when he was born, notice this, recognize it, worship him for it, say, this is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one the prophecy has told us about. This is the one who is Lord. And so they put their hope and their trust in him. But that's not what Jesus finds when he comes to the temple. Think about it this way. The temple, Jesus, goes to the temple. And no one seems to recognize or even care that he's there. The temple location, that was the place where God's presence was to be. That was the place where God met with man, where he was worshipped, where he was sacrificed to, where he was prayed to. That was the place of worship. And the very fullness of the presence of God walking around in Jerusalem comes to the temple. And what does he find? Like, this is the time. The Son of God is here. Like, strike up the band. Get all your stuff out. If you've got dirty garments, throw those on the ground. Whatever you've got, this is the time. The, the presence of God is here. He's walking around. He's in our midst. This is the place that should be full of God's praises, where they should be shouting out Hosanna, where they should be opening up all the, the stops to make sure we have the biggest celebration, the biggest party there is, because the one that we've been praising, the one that we've been sacrificing for, the one that we've been offering all this stuff up for is here. He's walking around. He came for us. But the temple that Jesus is looking at seems to be doing just fine without him. And we, we're going to find out in Mark 11 that it isn't doing just fine. But he looks around and, and they're not praising his coming. No one is there to welcome him, anxious to meet him. No one is sitting ready to worship him. There's no Annas, there's no Simeons. They seem sinfully content without his presence. And as we'll see in, in Mark 11, they're, they're totally fine with doing business as usual without him. And Jesus looks around, and Mark says that the hour was late. Surely the hour was late in more ways than one. And Jesus takes it all in, and he says he goes to Bethany with his disciples. And can you imagine being the temple and going to the temple and not being recognized? That's anticlimactic. He goes to the place that should be the very center and the very heart of the worship of the people of God. And he finds it eerily silent, lacking true worshipers. And yet, what is stunning here is that Jesus takes that all in and he goes to Bethany, but he hasn't hit the eject button on this mission. He hasn't said, I'm done. I'm out of this Forget it. Like, this is where they should welcome me. This is where I should be praised. And where's everybody now? Did, did the worship stop outside the city gates? And when the very place of worship that I'm supposed to be welcomed into as the temple 
They're not going to care about me. They're not going to say anything about me. The very presence of God, the thing that they've been longing for and hoping for, they're going to ignore me. Jesus doesn't say, forget it. I'm going to move on to another people or just take me back up into heaven now. He, he continues on with the week, a very important week. And the depravity shown by, by this people at this temple doesn't turn Jesus away from his objective, from his goal, from the very thing that he had set his heart to accomplish on the earth. Now, one of my favorite stories and, and probably the best Christmas movie there is is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And the Grinch thinks like, I know what I'm going to do. I don't like noise. I don't like Christmas. Like, I will destroy that for everybody. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to take it all away. So he you know, goes down with his sleigh, packs everything up, takes everything, and he's going to dump it off a hill, right? This is going to destroy Christmas. And he's so, I'm ready to hear the who's boo-hooing. So I'm going to listen. And what's he hear? He starts hearing singing. He took it all away, and then he's amazed that Christmas came just the same. Jesus goes to the temple, and he takes in the breadth and the height and the depth and the width of sin. And it didn't stop him from coming. He came just the same. He saw humanity in the fullness of their depravity, in the fullness of their sin. He knows their sin. He knows what it's going to take to ransom sinners, ransom such people like this. And he still stepped in. He still goes after them. You see, his heart towards sinful humanity wasn't just some sort of one-time thing where I'm, I'm, I guess I'll go down there now, Father, because I love them. But if something goes awry, I'm, I'm, I'm getting out. No, his very character nature is to love. It doesn't ever stop. So he goes to the temple and it's eerily silent and he doesn't say, you know what, forget it. It's not worth it. He keeps going because it's his very nature to love sinful humanity. That's who he is. And what good news for us to know now that this, just, this story of him not aborting the mission wasn't just a one-off for him either. That now we can know the very character and nature of God as well. This is his heart toward us too. This matters as we look at what's going on all around our world. Like we can know the heart of our God. He knows the, the greatness of the depravity of man. He knows the greatness of our sin. He knows all of the eerie secrets of our heart. He knows how bad it is, and his heart toward us is love. Amen. We can know that in all that's going on around us, we see the depth of sin in us and outside of us, that God loves us. One author says this, that this impossible mess that we have made, this ongoing crime spree we call human history, this soap opera of self-excusing absurdities, this is the world God loves, to which he gave his only son. Church, the son of God came. He knows all of the depths of sin and he still came. He lived and died demonstrating his love for sinners, for a world that is rebellious to him. Behold your king. 
Like this is the one that we serve. This is the one that we could cry Hosanna to and keep on shouting Hosanna to no matter what's going on in the world or even in our own hearts because we know his heart toward us, that the Son of God loves us, he came for us, and that's not going to change. He's for us. And so we cry out as those who can delight in the presence of our God. Praise to the King, the one who came to ransom our lives. And we can cry out as those who have great hope and confidence that He's going to make another triumphal entry. And this triumphal entry will not be anticlimactic in any way. Listen to its description in Revelation. It says, Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. There will be no cult of a donkey any longer. He's traded that in. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. As if he couldn't contain them. He he deserves so much kinghood placed on him. And he has the name that's written that's above every name but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, here he brings the armies with him. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. He gives them something to mount on as well. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Ah, behold your king. This is one we can cry Hosanna to, not only with praise and acclamation to his name, but also with great expectation that he's the one who's going to come and close the game. As we gather together, if you've trusted in this name, one of the things that we get to do is we get to proclaim not only that we trust in this king of kings and lord of lords, but that what we just read is going to happen. And one of the ways that we do that is by taking a sacred family meal together called the Lord's Supper. I also want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a portion of that for us. When when Paul talks about our partaking of this cup and of this bread, he says some specific things about it, about how the cup that we take is a cup in Jesus' blood. It's a cup of thankfulness before our God. So we take this sacred family meal, and here are the words that we need to hear. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you can do all to the glory of God. Now everything we do, including this meal, is to be unto the glory of God. So we think that the the way that we do this matters deeply. Now, we've had to try to alter and navigate through a pandemic as we've taken this common meal together. But one of the things that we wanted to do was make sure that we got as close to faithfully to the scripture, the text, as we could possibly get. And so we've switched away from, and you can still have these if you're uncomfortable, there's individuals, cups out there. We're moving back to a a, a common loaf and a common cup because the 1 Corinthians 11, I didn't go there. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about the Lord's Supper. It says over and over again, when you come together. In other words, part of this meal, part of the symbol of this meal that we're taking together is not only of our faith in Christ, of his coming, of his return, but that we're together in this. 
That we're with him together on this. So when you gather, when you gather is this repeated phrase from 1 Corinthians 11. It's what you see in the book of Acts is that the church comes together for this. This is a meal of presence, of us being together and us together taking of Christ. And so we've changed up how we do it away from the individualized cups to, again, part of the symbol of, of being together. Common loaf, common cup. So it comes from a common place, but you have the individual cups now for pandemic purposes. And so this morning, here's how it's going to work. You, you won't have the individual cup unless you want them. Those are outside if you need them. But we're going to exit row by row. So we'll start, I mean, this is for the middle, this front section only. Uh, you guys will see the flow chart, but we'll start from the back and we'll move forward and just try to be aware of social distance protocol, right? Like row at a time, come forward. And this time you're going you're gonna to grab a cup and you're going you're gonna to get a piece of bread. And, and there's someone there holding it, masked and gloved, of course, because we don't spread anything at all. But they'll be there and they're going to remind you, this is the body broken for you. The body of Christ was broken for you. If you're in Christ, this is a meal to be reminded that, that his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins, that his body was broken, that you might have a, a body made whole one day. And so that's what we're doing in this meal. So come, get a cup, get the bread, be reminded the body of Christ was broken for you, and, and be reminded that because of this meal and what we're proclaiming in this meal is that Jesus is going to return one day in a triumphal entry. We also want to remind you, if, if you're not a believer, like this is, this is not a meal for you. Like the, the cup that we're taking, the, 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 the loaf that we're eating from, is, it's a loaf, it's in Christ. It's saying we're in Christ. We've put everything in him. We trust wholly in him. If he doesn't come through for us, then we're most to be uh, called foolish. Like we're the fools. We're saying we're staking it all on him. So if that's not you, then don't take this meal. It's, it's okay to, to sit and watch. And we'd rather you, you believe in Jesus. Take him. Trust in him. Turn from your sins into him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But don't take this meal. And if you want to know what that's like, find a believer. Come ask one of the pastors. We'd love to talk to you what it means to follow after Jesus, to have a place in him, to be in him, to put your faith in him, but don't take this meal. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll start with the back and the downstairs and the back section. We're, we're going to trust you guys to handle that in an orderly way as well, but after I pray, start with the back forward and, and come up and be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending your son as a ransom for many. As we get to think through and meditate on him, I, I pray that you would make him more and more of a delight to us, that he would be more and more of a treasure to us, that the more we think on Jesus, the more we want to do for him, praise him, love him. So continue to unveil his beauties to our sight. Even as we take this meal, Father, we, we ask that you would unveil more beauties. As we look around, let us be encouraged by one another's faith. Of there's other people that we're taking this meal together and we're saying together, we're all in with Jesus. Thank you that we can have certain hope and confidence in him. That he's not only the one who came and lived and died, but that who's coming again because he rose and he's going to come and finally and fully complete what he started. May we take this meal in great hope. God, for those who aren't believers, please now draw their hearts to yourself. Instead of being drawn to this meal, may they be drawn to you. May they repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus, the one who lived and died, demonstrating his love. God, we want to honor and glorify you, whether we eat or we drink. And so now as we draw near to this table, help us to eat and drink in a manner 
that would bring you honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Come when you're ready.